Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students with me today. We are going to tackle autism a little bit. Big topic, and I think uh, you guys picked great space to discuss. Let's start off with some introductions. And Leslie, uh, you and Matt are co-hosting this one, so to speak. Uh, how about if you introduce yourself? All right, my name's Leslie Waters Keller. I'm a Rocky Vista University third year medical student and I'm originally from Indiana. Which part of Indiana? Indianapolis. Which part of Indianapolis? Lawrence Township. How, how far is that from um, Fishers? Uh, maybe 20 minutes, we were pretty close. Pretty close, so believe it or not, I've been to Fishers. That's pretty good, it's... not a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> well, my <clears throat> little brother is there. That's something. Little brother. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's an oral surgeon and he actually listens to these and he's it's a lot of fun when he does so shout out to Dr. Roundy the other one one of the other ones I should say uh, so where are you headed so we'll kind of do a little bit deeper introduction than we normally would with each of you because this will be the only podcast that both of you do and you both co-prepare tell me a little bit about uh, where you're at in school and where you're headed if you wouldn't mind Okay, so um, yeah, I'm a third year medical student about halfway through my year now doing my psych rotation. I actually want to go into psychiatry or pediatrics or both. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking at triple board programs where I can do all of the above. So hopefully that's where I end up. Very cool. And Matt. So my name is Matt Stephenson. I am orig originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm also a third year uh, medical student at Rocky Vista University in Ivins. Um, my hope, I want to do family medicine. I have a, a couple of variety of interests, which helps with family medicine, being able to have that variety. Uh, my wife is originally from rural Utah, and so being able to maybe help out rural communities sounds interesting. But if I were to pick one thing that I really like with family medicine, of like all the different aspects or fellowships that you could do, uh, I've actually had a big interest in sports medicine. Um, graduated in kinesiology and just really enjoyed the biomechanics and everything along with it. Um, and <clears throat> I'm really excited to do this podcast because, uh, or one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is because I have a daughter who is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And so it was kind of something a little bit more personal, more to me. And also, kind of goes uh, more into the well, just psychiatry and child psychiatry and everything. So, this is going to be a this is going to be a really fun podcast. I'm really excited. Where did you graduate from college? What was university? I went to Utah State University in and, Logan. And they had a kinesiology with the biomechanics, all of that with the right. anatomy kind of stuff. Yeah, it's actually it's called. They have. I'm sure they renamed it. It was called Human Movement Science when I was there, but they were slowly rebranding everything to kinesiology and so like before you know you have your uh classes that were labeled as like hms 3100 or whatever and uh they started changing that to kin as i think they're trying to rename it into kinesiology so okay. i'm sure the degree now is called kinesiology if i were to look it up and where is your wife from my wife is from Richfield, Utah. Richfield. We, Corey is from Richfield, our administrative director on the unit. Oh, and we've really? had a lot of uh, amazing employees from the area. So uh, we have a lot of fondness for Richfield. He, he's actually from a nearby suburb. Um, 
so, suburb. I, I'm using some air quotes. There. My my wife grew up in Annabella, so one of the nearby suburbs. One of the nearby suburbs where you drive 15 minutes. Well, Richfield Dillon was always going into town. That's where you go to go grocery shopping or go to school or work. But yeah, Annabella, probably a town of like 800 people. Not a single stoplight. I think there's probably like two or three stop signs. So it's pretty fun. And there are a handful of towns like that. I think yeah. uh, I always want to say Eden, but that's wrong. I think it's uh, Venice. Is that right? Is there a Venice down there? And then there's a couple of other small towns. Yeah. And I, I always get them mixed up. A wonderful, wonderful uh, bunch of employees that we've had here at the State Hospital from there. Um, let, I should probably get moving with the podcast. For those of you that have made it this far, we'll, we'll get started with it. Um, but just as a quick side note, one of the things that we hope to do is um, many people we think will listen to these podcasts and have thoughts about where they go into medicine and how they get there. And so uh, my feeling has always been that having some sort of introduction from the students that are the stars of the show helps other students potentially as they think about where they might go in medicine and how they think about it, gives some more uh, experiences, I think, as a student. Um, I was asking a lot of people what they're going to do, why they decided to go there, how, the, how they got there, and, um, and my impression is that still happens. So I, I appreciate you guys being willing to share. Thanks for asking. Now as a, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> now as a second note here, um, I, this is probably the least prepared I've ever been for a podcast, and I'm a little bit anxious about that. I, I tried to read through what I could, and I also, um, I, I had a list of of things, got to turn off the heater, hang on. I had a list of things that I was very interested in tackling and as part of a larger discussion of autism, I think you two picked those things incredibly well and I think any any larger of a podcast would have been problematic. But I think we're going to talk about some really interesting topics as we go through this and I'm really happy to do, I'm happy to I'm excited to do this with you guys, and, and I'm going to try and ask us a lot of questions, and, and I may ask questions that you have already planned to talk about. If I do that, just kind of say, coming, hold on, okay? So so let's go ahead and start. Matt, you, you mentioned your daughter, Etta. Um, I think this is a pretty, um, I, I think I you asked a little bit about whether it would be okay to bring that in or not, and I said, uh, up to you entirely. And you've got a little bit of a case scenario here, so to speak, and uh, I don't know if it's your daughter or if it's loosely based on her, but go ahead and, and tell us about however you want to introduce this and kind of get us started. So the way that I was thinking of this is it is, this is all uh, real. Uh, this is a real patient. Uh, she is my daughter. This is uh, everything that was uh, given about her, especially as we were trying to figure out her language deficits that she had, and uh, if we should go into, well, look deeper into autism spectrum disorder. Um, kind of like where we started with, and uh, maybe uh, what the doctor, uh, the pediatrician, uh, recommended. And so I wrote up a case, to, well, an HPI of hers, and uh, the way that I was thinking of viewing this, especially for those third-year medical students who are studying for your shelf, is that this is kind of like build up to be somewhat of a U-world question or what you would see in a U-world question. And then we'll go a little bit deeper into the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder, maybe some variety that you can see, uh, especially towards females and males, and then uh, the treatments and also the prevalence. And so to start off, 
Uh, Edda, she is a two-year-old female, comes into her two-year uh, child wellness exam. Growth chart shows 90th percentile in height and 60th percentile in weight. The head circumference is actually normal in range. Patient has shown great motor function with alternating feet on stairs, the ability to kick a ball, and stacking up to about six blocks. The patient does not speak any words and only occasionally grunts. She doesn't make any con she doesn't make any eye contact with the doctor and is fascinated by books on the bookshelf, grabbing a book or sorry, grabbing a book one at a time and tries to get on the parent's lap to read. The patient loves routines, often grabbing two oranges, one apple, one piece of bread, and milk for breakfast every morning from the refrigerator. It's actually really cute because you get to the refrigerator and you open up the uh, refrigerator door and she is grabbing those exact things every single time and is ready to have that for breakfast. And at night, <laughs> she's honestly the dream child when it came to bedtime, but she puts herself to bed after reading five books every night. It was quite literally, you finish that book and you place her down and she would walk to her bed and get snuggled up in her bed and pull up her covers and you close the door and she falls asleep. And the patient's mother also mentions that the patient loves playing with dirt, often rubbing it on her face, and can sit in one spot playing for about an hour. She's not bothered by loud, uh, she's not bothered by any loud sounds, so no vacuum or anything like that. The patient does well with parallel play, but doesn't interact with other children. And so, uh, reading that, you can kind of see maybe some things that maybe it would lead you into autism disorder. Uh, the other thing is that there's also, she's two, uh, there could just be like some delays and some developmental growth that can be normal and she would be able to overcome. But the thing that was really kind of getting to us was the language deficits and also the lack of eye contact or just any sort of communication. And that's kind of what led us to look into it. And so that kind of brings into the question like, what is autism spectrum disorder? I'm going to, um, so I'm a little bit of a caveman. All of my medical students that have come through here They've heard me say some variant of that because for me to make sense of the diagnostic criteria, I have to have a picture in my mind, right? And, and that picture, um, I think, got a lot more clear with autism preparing for this uh, podcast. So I'm, what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, I'm going to talk about the two major criteria. In the first criteria, which is uh, social interaction criteria, this is my lumper mm -hmm. mind, it kind of breaks down into three areas. And I'm going to name each one of these, and I want you, if you wouldn't mind, to talk about how that played out in your daughter, if it did or didn't. Would that be okay with you? Yeah. All right, so the first one that's mentioned in the social interaction um, heading is reciprocity in social interactions. Like reciprocating? Mm-hmm. Uh, she did not reciprocate. So how what would that look like when you would try and talk to your daughter? So when we would try to talk to her, uh, she wouldn't make any eye contact. Um, she occasionally would, depending if you're able to get her attention. But like to get her attention is quite literally getting into her face, getting like as close as possible so that she is looking at you and then trying to lead her um, to whatever you're trying to help her with. Uh, she did occasionally, uh, she got into a habit later that she would start grabbing our hands to try and drag us to like the pantry or something to try and get a snack. Um, but she wouldn't point. Uh, she, whenever you try to do animal sounds, for example, we had this big picture of 
uh, farm animals that was right next to the kitchen table. And whenever you uh, made the animal sounds and pointed and trying to get her to repeat the animal sounds, it's just a blank stare or a blank stare. Maybe the animals are nothing. She just, sometimes she'll also smile at it, but um, it wasn't necessarily no reciprocation. There, there definitely wasn't, um, I, I think, parallel play rather than interactive kinds of things, right? Right. That, that uh, reciprocity just wasn't there. Um, how Some of the things you talked about, and I don't remember where this was in the criteria, sometimes the reciprocal um, behaviors seem to be like making eye contact back, but then there's also another uh, sub part under the social interactions that speaks to nonverbal kind of impairment. So so I think the the eye contact was a nonverbal impairment where we don't engage in ways that bring people into us. For example, while we're sitting here talking over a microphone, we're, we do a terrible job of looking at the microphone, right? We're looking at each other right. to make sure if those interactions are happening. And, and one, one of the things that I wasn't clear on, and, and it sort of surprised me, is you can say something to a child that has autism, and they may not even respond. You're nodding yes. I am nodding <laughs> yes. Because um, it's like, yeah, no, she wouldn't respond. That's really what it would happen. How did you manage that initially? Um, kind of like what I said, with getting into her, like, trying to get her attention is usually like trying to get to her, and, like, in her face a little bit, or picking her up and taking her to a specific place. Um, what was interesting, though, is that there were times where we felt like that she was listening, but she wasn't interacting with us. And so it'd be like... We lived in a townhouse in St. George um, well, during the first two years of her life. And so when we say, Etta, let's up or bedtime, like she would stop what she was doing and actually go to the stairs and go up to the stairs. And eventually, like she'll try to grab her books or go straight to the bathtub because she knows the routine where it's like, yeah, get a bath. Uh, once we get the bath, we brush your two little teeth that she has or so. <laughs> and then you uh, sit down, she'll grab like a couple of books and then she'll sit in the place sitting in the rocking chair waiting for you to come and start reading to her and as soon as you do that she would then get up and leave and so like I could you could tell that like she was listening but she wasn't interacting mm -hmm. relationships also uh, have impairment to meet diagnostic criteria I, by the way, I want to go back and say one other thing. I, I've known you long enough to know that you don't get in people's faces. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure that what you mean by that is that you get in front of her face. I get face. in her face. Yeah, I, I get in front of her face. And, and try everything you can to disrupt her attention to whatever it may be upon. That's correct. Okay. I, I just thought I would make sure that everybody else <laughs> who might not know you, Matt, uh, uh, saw that part of you as opposed to misinterpreting that. Relationships. I think it can be very frustrating for parents who may have another child that um, bonds to have a child that I think, and I, I don't know that I understand this well enough to comment on it, but my guess is she hasn't bound as tightly as you might imagine she would. You're, you're part of the crowd, not mom and dad, in terms of how attached some children can be. See, so this is actually where it gets a little bit fuzzy, is that she actually does get 
she does do really well with, I think, her interprofessional, sorry, medical student talking. Um, Her, well, the parent relationship. Like, she, uh, I know she absolutely adores me and cries whenever I leave, just as any any kid would do. Um, She gets, you know, she still has that somewhat of a separation anxiety uh, that, for those of you who are studying, happens at nine months. Um, (laughs) she still has that separation anxiety that occurred whenever we would leave the room. She wasn't completely, um, like indifferent to us. Mm -hmm. I, it was just, like I said, it was just the communication aspect of trying to get her attention or try to do um, other things. In theory, that relationship piece does have to be present. I think one of the comments that shows up in the DSM quite often is that you might only see threads of that. And then as the demands for social interaction might grow, that would become unmasked. And, and that might be something that you, you were watching or preparing for with something that we might talk about in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, the next large category, so we talked about social interactions, and, and you've hinted at some of these things. But the next big category is restricted interests and or behaviors. And there's a couple of options under here. I think one is... Uh, this uh, some stereotyped behaviors I think is kind of what it talks about so maybe flapping or some other activity that may show up I didn't hear that in your description so there it's usually started off like kind of the beginning of questioning of maybe getting her checked for autism was that uh, aunt you know you never really want to hear this as uh, as a parent about your own child but it's your aunts or siblings or um, other people who see your child do specific movements or something and it's like oh like does she have autism or is that something that maybe you want to check especially because of her lack of communication and she does whenever she gets very excited or very uh, um, angry uh, she uh, does do something with her arms usually somewhat of a flapping um, at other times, though, I've also seen other kids who are uh, have not been diagnosed with autism do, you know, just when they're trying to control their emotions, they just can't handle it. And so they do something with their limbs or other things like that. And so it's not as consistent as not uh, consistent enough with the arm ring that I would usually think with a child with autism. But I. Uh, that has been mentioned or noticed by other people. The next uh, potential area is sameness, which I thought was very interesting. I, I, I wondered if this was the nighttime ritual. The nighttime ritual, the morning ritual, any ritual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, like, it's funny because my uh, wife and I are very organized people and are uh, very happy to do routines. And here's our daughter who's just perfect at getting into the specific routine that we just kind of are able to put her in and she would get upset if that is like just disrupted in any way and so a good example would be um if we disrupted her sleep schedule based on maybe uh, in-laws coming to visit and maybe staying with us or just not reading as many books as she would like or um, not helping her, like, tuck her into bed or other things like that. It's very much like she would be upset and she would have a, a very difficult time going to bed. And so um, 
very inflexible in those very routines. inflexible in those routines Be- became irritable if those routines got broken especially breakfast okay uh, <laughs> the next one in there um, highly restricted fixated interests so and and also something like that was interesting is an attachment object so um, it's it seems like where maybe many children would move from item to item the description is somebody with autism might get locked into an item right or t- or one type of item in a variety of settings right anything like that so i mentioned the books the books are not necessarily that hyper attachment though that i usually see in my practice questions when i study for my shelf exam um she doesn't she does get upset if you take away like a book or something like that but it's not like a Usually I've seen it mentioned as like children with a toy car of some sort and they just cannot be separated by that toy car. You take them into the pediatric appointment and as you try to take away the car, they just throw the biggest tantrum. And I mean, right now I could say it's the iPad, (laughs) but you know, there's also lots of... Wait, are you talking about you or are you talking about... (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? Um, but like, so she does have those moments, especially now with like those like objects, um, that could be maybe, but like, it's not abnormal. Well, let me repeat that. It's not necessarily like, I feel like abnormal in terms of like the object, the object's not a weird object that she is just focusedly attached to. Um, but she does get attached to specific objects. There was, uh, I think... I think there was some comments in the DSM, and I don't remember if it was in the actual text for the diagnosis or later, that said essentially it's a lot easier to diagnose that attachment when it's an odd or unusual object that most kids wouldn't attach to. But if it's a, a, an item that a lot of kids might attach to, an iPad, iPad um, then maybe it would be harder to figure that out. Uh, the last option in here is hyper or hyposensory. Uh, responsiveness to sensory, right? Um, talk to us a little bit about that. So I mentioned with Etta the dirt. Um, she, this is probably the best example that we've had, uh, especially with it, but like any kind of like sand or other things, whenever we went to the beach with the family or something, she would very much uh, just sit there playing with the dirt or sand itself. It is uh, like picking up the sand and rubbing the sand like in her hands. It's taking the sand and then rubbing it on her face. Um, Another thing that is a little bit different that's not too along with the dirt, but if she is anxious or trying to be comforted in some way, she'll actually take your hands and uh, have her, well, she will have you put it on her head and she'll try and have you push, like squeeze her head in a sense. Hmm. And so for her... um, She's very hyposensitive, where she is sens- she is seeking those um, sensory inputs, rather than being hypersensitive and uh, being very upset through objects like a vacuum or a blender. She doesn't care about the vacuum or the blender. I'm sitting here chuckling because <laughs> I was thinking I don't care about the vacuum or the blender either. I, <laughs> don't even hear them anymore but uh thought maybe while i'm sitting here rubbing the piece of petrified wood that i have in my fingers maybe i shouldn't talk about sensory things um 
Let's shift gears just a little bit. There, there are obviously a couple of other things that come into play with almost every other diagnosis and this one. There are some comments about needing to be present in those first two years, and usually it unmasks in that year one to two months, 12 to 24, not always. Um, and the other caveats about um, impairment and functioning, and also a lot of rule outs, right? There's both rule outs in this case, which I think are part of the differential diagnosis. We're going to talk about that in a moment, or at least I have some notes too as well as comorbidity, which seems like there's a lot of. So uh, the DSM uh, talks to us about the comorbidity of intellectual disability, ADH, and oddly enough, seizures, and we might come back to that in a few minutes. So what is it that the shelf exam expects us to know on this? So I simplified it pretty well. That whenever I'm doing uh, practice questions, it's deficits in social communication and interactions with onset and early development. And so if they are not talking, not saying any words, or if they're saying few words, say if they're four years old, um, and they only say like a, like five words or so at that point, um, that's something that is uh, that you should look for, as well as I uh, notice a big one is eye contact. Um, they do not make eye contact. Um, the next one is, as we talked about before, restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. And I feel like along with the eye contact, this also kind of sets the questions apart when you are trying to diagnose autism, is that they do have a strict routine or they have that toy car that we mentioned that they are hyper fixated on and they get very upset when that is disrupted. You have a comment about buzzwords. Um, this is what sets questions apart. I'm not entirely sure what you meant by that. My thought was that when I am doing those practice questions and I'm trying to decide if this is uh, either a language deficit dis uh, disorder or autism spectrum disorder, is that the difference is they have that restrictive repetitive pattern. And so that is what the toy car, I think, is like kind of what sets me off thinking autism more so than other things. Fair enough. Um, you have the note here that uh, on the shelf exam, be aware that it may occur with or without language or intellectual impairment. And so sometimes, I know I had a question that looked into um, like an older child who did not have somewhat of a language deficit. And so it's hard to be able to uh, try and figure out, but then you see the social interactions that they have. It's usually like a child who has been in school and they don't have any friends. Um, or they're having a hard time making friends and they're, fit, and they're fixated on those things. Like I said, those are repetitive behaviors um, or restrictive behaviors. Uh, but they don't seem, uh, it's just that's what is the deficit right there. And usually the answer ends up being autism. Other things with intellectual impairment is that sometimes you can have uh, intellectual disability while also being having that autism. Uh, but they... Are, um, but not everyone has that intellectual impairment. Like sometimes they are doing actually very well in school, but again, the social aspect, they just aren't able to really make friends or are kind of awkward around people. And, and just to be very clear, that the intellectual disability is more of a comorbidity, comorbidity or a passenger that commonly comes with right. uh, autism. It's not. It's not a symptom of autism necessarily, right? You have to get into the social impairment or the the kind of 
bound behaviors, right, to, to be able to do that. Um, I wanted to uh, just mention very briefly that in your differential, as you're looking at those shelf exam questions, usually the DSM will give you a list of things in the differential, right? Um, and being able to recognize those will help you pick the differences between the distractors on, on this exam. So be aware of Rett syndrome, OCD, intellectual disability, which we've mentioned, language disorders, stereotypic movement disorder, and how to tell the difference between that and uh, just a symptom of larger syndrome, right? Seizure disorder, and something that I can't read my writing on now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it says PDS, but I'm not sure. Right. Um, but, like, you know, to kind of summarize it, if I was using Edda's HBI, that kind of matched that autism spectrum disorder, uh, it'd be the language deficit, no words, the minimal eye contact, especially, like, with us and also the physician that was there and present, uh, minimal interaction with other children, the fascination with books, which is a possible one, but maybe, uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, strict routines, especially that breakfast routine and bedtime routine, and then the hyposensory. Um, or hypersensory. Or Sens hypersensory. Remember, sensory is the key part of that. Right. But, yeah, so with, in, that, in my daughter's case, it, she's more hyposensitive, hyposensitive in that case. I'm going to totally shuffle things. Um, Matt, you read a little bit about how autism was originally discovered or identified. <laughs> Can you give like a, just like a 15 second summary about how this developed? And then I, after that, what I want to do is jump to prevalence because I think prevalence first gives us a better way to lead into Leslie's discussion because I think there are some challenges with understanding how common this condition is among many other challenges with this. So would that be okay if we yeah. skip that around a little bit and I throw a curveball at you? That is totally fine. Um, I uh, did a quick Google search on this before, <laughs> but Leo Kanner uh, was a psychiatrist at John Hopkins University. Um, he uh, had 11 children in his clinic that didn't have any social instinct to orient towards other people. Or sorry, I can kind of rephrase that. 11 children in his clinic without the social instinct to orient towards other people who were mostly focused or even obsessed with objects or had a need for sameness or resistance to unexpected change. And so that was in 1943. Um, Interesting how so many of those words have stuck around in the diagnosis, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah. There was another guy. Uh, Asperger? Yeah, it was Hans Asperger in the University of Vienna in Austria. Also had a similar thing, but his research did not get as noticed as um, Kanner in that, during that time period. Which is interesting because while I was reading through various, um, various of the things that I was trying to prepare with, I was, I was left with a couple of questions, and I think it leads into the next topic on prevalence. I, why did we change to autism spectrum disorder? And I think I know the answer, but if I'm wrong, I want you to correct me, okay? Um, I think it's because there were all sorts of kinds of autism out there, including Canner's autism was a name I ran across. Asperger's is viewed as a variant of autism, right? There's all of these different groups of 
conditions that have some overlap. And I think in a sense, autism spectrum disorder uh, lumped them all, right? Because this, this most recent iteration of the, of the DSM eliminated Asperger's, right? Am I on the right track there? Yeah, no, you're, you are correct. <laughs> I, um, I get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's like, you know, the DSM made this note, but it is a broad definition. And that is why they termed it not as just autism, but autism spectrum disorder. Talk about that a little bit more, because I, I had an aha moment reading through this today. I, I mean, I've always been aware that there's a range, but there's a range of ranges, it seems like. Talk, talk to me about spectrum. Um, I'm not as read up on it. Um, part of me, it's just kind of like what we talked about with like, Sometimes they just cannot interact with other people. And along with that, in that language deficit, there could be sometimes intellectual disabilities or other things associated along with that autism. And other times, uh, what I think with my own daughter, uh, especially as time went on, is that she may be actually very high functioning on like autism because she actually has made significant improvements even since that diagnosis was established on her. And so, like, and like I said, as this is what inspired me to look deeper in the subject and kind of look into the prevalence, like, are we over-diagnosing or are we maybe misdiagnosing or are we kind of looking into other things that could go into it, um, is that ever since her diagnosis, she started to make consistent eye contact and she started pointing at objects and she started to seek approval from and also communication from uh, me and my wife. And even though she still doesn't say any words, she's almost three now. It's been, uh, well, it was since she was two, but like since that 10 period of nine months or so, uh, she doesn't have any words still, but she actually, uh, we were recommended to start trying to do American Sign Language with her. And she actually knows 40 to 50 words and is able to communicate with us fairly effectively with that sign language. Um, and... We also put her into ABA therapy, which is, we'll talk about treatments later, but she, in that therapy, it's interesting because her instructors have nothing to say but positive remarks and often kind of brag about Etta to other uh, instructors there of saying like, look how much she's making eye contact or look how much she's interacting with us. And she doesn't really have any real behavior problem that I feel like is out of an ordinary of a two-year-old. As we know that two-year-olds often we call it like <laughs> the terrible twos for a reason. The so. terrific twos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I may have celebrated a three-year-old birthday at one point just to get a kid out of the twos. But and sometimes they were, with they were three, twenty-seven months old. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes with three-year-olds, though, is that they're just two-year-olds with experience. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the birthday party worked for one child, didn't for another one. Um, so. Let's see, we're, we're talking a little bit about that spectrum. The, the thing that I think struck me, and you're speaking to this, is that not only is there variation in symptoms, right? So there can be a constellation of maybe eight or 10 different kinds of things that might show up. I guess the DSM has seven fairly specific ones under the two criteria. You can have variations in severity of each of those. So when you're talking about a spectrum, it's I, I have this, image of, of like um, 
a soundboard with a whole bunch of little levers on it, or, or button, not buttons, but uh, sliders, I think is the right word, where some might be up and some might be down. And every child has some variation of those sliders in place with higher or lower functioning, so to speak. That, that really struck me and it made more sense why it is autism spectrum. Now the next question I think that comes up though is as we've lumped these diagnoses together, even with that, it seems that over time we find more and more people who fit within the autism spectrum diagnosis. Even if you were to go back and lump Asperger's and uh, autism together or the variants of autism. And, and before I jump into that, I want to make sure, Leslie, you've been nodding along the whole time, <laughs> and, and I'm worried that you have more to add and haven't done it. You know that you can just jump in, right? <laughs> yeah. The only thing, because my section will be a little bit later, but we were talking about the spectrum of autism, mm -hmm. and one thing I'll get into is the difference in presentation in females versus males, too. So not only is there a spectrum across, but also across sex gender, they can present differently as well. So we'll dive more into the details there, but it's kind of a added layer on top. And I, I think I'm going to throw another layer. We're not going to tackle this in the podcast. This is a huge topic, right? It could be even bigger. I think there's also, there might be some differences maybe in cultural presentation and race presentation? Is that right or did I? I actually noticed that as well. Um, in some of the research that I looked at, I don't have it necessarily right in front of me right now, so I'm definitely paraphrasing, but race, not so much. They actually found it pretty similar across the board with race, um, but there could be some cultural differences. Some cultural manifestations. So so at least a, at least, at least a couple of layers with uh, Sex and and race. Yeah. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna get into that in just a moment. Uh, who who's tackling? Uh, there was an, a study that came out in 2018. I remember this quite well, where that uh, ratio of one in 150 dropped to one in 44. There was a lot of noise about that. The question was, are we simply overdiagnosing now? On some level, I, I and I'll just throw out the very high approach, and then we're gonna talk about this more specifically. On some level, this is an increased ability to recognize where more people looking for this condition. On another level, there may be an increase in the presence. I mean, there's been some question linking this to, uh, I wanna say later age of parents. I don't know that that ever panned out. I think there was some stuff looking at particulates at one point. I'm not sure if that ever uh, panned out, but there may be something environmental that is actually causing this. There may also be something of overdiagnosing as well. There may be something of broadening the criteria, which we've talked about to some extent. So I wanna hear your thoughts about all of that, and I wanna see where this discussion goes. Well, something that was interesting too is Canner. Uh, this is on that Google search I looked at, but he was actually um, criticized because he thought that uh, autism children, uh, children with autism typically came from parents who were actually more like negative affect or just didn't really communicate with their children child at all. And so it kind of stemmed from that, but that's was a criticism. He seemed to think it was uh, due to parent, parenting, parenting issue. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting though, because I, I think you might argue that some of Etta's progress is related to the therapies and how you go about working with her to fill those deficits. And perhaps some par parents would automatically know how to do that, but I don't think that would 
naturally happen. Right. Does that sound right to you? Um. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Matt is Matt is hedging here. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So go ahead and jump in with what you were going to say. Well, I looked into a, an article that um, was in the Journal of Child Neurology, and it was uh, focusing on the children. It was focusing basically at whether children were able to fall out of the criterion of autism spectrum disorder and what happened to those children. So not tackling the question of why are we diagnosing so many more, but you're taking it from another approach, which is maybe we're keeping too many people in the diagnosis that should be moved out. Well, and that's what's interesting is that once the diagnosis of autism is made, it is a lifelong diagnosis. It sticks, doesn't it? Yeah, it sticks. And so what they've, just what this had was that they had 569 participants um, diagnosed with autism who were, were younger than the age of three. And they continue to follow up, and about 38 children of that 369 uh, fell out of the diagnostic criteria for uh, ASD. Um, and that was according to the DSM-4 at that time. Uh, but some things that I found that made me uh, think about the... Um, just like you know, the sample size I associated with it is that due to some changes in the researchers' of clinical affiliation, uh, it resulted in a loss of some participants, leaving only 108 left. And of that, um, they also had different types of follow-up where they tried to do every six months, but due to a, a parent's choice, sometimes they came a little bit less and came during specific milestone moments like entering kindergarten or other things like that. Um, and also of that 38 that I mentioned that fell out of the diagnostic criteria, six of them had no de developmental delays anymore, but the rest of them had uh, a better diagnosis that better explained what they were going through. Kind of like what we said with the maybe comorbidity, but also maybe like a different differential diagnosis that better explained what the child was going through. And so some things that I kind of thought about is that like, you know, six patients out of the 569 is actually a pretty small number. It's 1% um, for them to technically grow out of or not be diagnosed with autism anymore. Um, but something that I was talking about with Leslie that I actually think is really interesting that could explain a lot of it, um, which I think is a pretty good uh, transition to her points of maybe different presentations, but there's something called masking and camouflaging that wasn't mentioned in this article that basically these children are able to mask their symptoms of autism spectrum disorder and be able to uh, participate in everyday activity pretty well, actually. I don't think we're going to tackle a lot more of the issue of are we overdiagnosing? I think we'll probably leave that for another podcast. But I do think there is an interesting question that Leslie tackles, which is perhaps we're underdiagnosing, and particularly in uh, women. Right? There's a couple of comments in the DSM saying that in very good studies, I think one to three or one to four, I don't remember what the DSM said. I think you're going to talk about that one to three versus one to four ratio in a moment. Um, it, it, it doesn't happen as, it, this doesn't show up as often in, in women, um, or at least it's not manifest as often, often in women. I think the DSM alludes 
to difficulties that we have looking for women who have this condition. So, so pick this up and talk to me about, if I want to be a good clinician, at his cases, I think a little bit easier to have high suspicion for autism than many of the women that we would maybe uh, look at and maybe consider diagnosis. So talk to us about those differences and distinctions. Yeah, definitely. So the ratio of male to female with autism spectrum disorder used to be four to one. It recently shifted to a three to one ratio. Um, but with it being primarily a male diagnosis, the diagnostic tools were created kind of on that stereotypical male presentation. So females a lot of times don't present the same. They can, um, and like we said, it's a spectrum, but there are certain features that physicians, diagnosticians have noticed are more common in females. Um, different things like a less obvious atypical interest, so like Etta being fixated on books. That can also be kind of normal for a toddler age. So if it's um, like more of a typical object that they're interested in, it might be less obvious to a physician, a teacher, a parent to then refer them for evaluation. And you're saying that young girls are more likely to be fixated on something that may be more within the norm, but the fixation would be higher or more intense than would be expected normally. Exactly, okay. yes. Um, there are also, many studies have shown that they have lower restrictive and repetitive behaviors than males. So maybe less of the flapping of hands or things like that um, might be pre less present in females. Fewer stereotyped behaviors mm -hmm. too then? Okay. Yes. Um, they've also seen that a lot of females with autism spectrum disorder internalize behaviors more. So instead of acting out, being impulsive, having control problems, they might hold it more inside and withdraw, uh, maybe present with more anxiety versus it being an outward expression, which again can be hard to pick up on sometimes. I'm guessing that some boys slash men would also present the same way, but that there's kind of some overlap in the middle and then that there's some distribution changes. Okay. Yes. So yes. I, I wish I, you could see my hands on the podcast, <laughs> but I'm trying to imagine two uh, normal distributions where the tells of each overlap a little yes, bit. Yes, definitely. Um, and like Matt mentioned, the camouflaging, they found that females are better at camouflaging, often, not always, where they're able to mask social difficulties by maybe mimicking the behaviors of others. They learn how to make eye contact and do that to engage better with people. Um, again, internalizing maybe problems that they're having. So it's, they're kind of coming up with ways to hide their struggles and fit in a little bit better. But again, this can make it more difficult to refer and then diagnose too. Um, let's see. So that, that was kind of the general gist of what I was finding of different presentations. Um, there are also some suggestions that, which this can vary, but um, of females being more of the social sex, and so there's more social pressure, more social motivation for females to fit in socially. Um, one of the studies I was looking at said you might see a female with autism spectrum disorder have a group of friends, but she might be more likely to be on the outside of the group. So not as good at being really tight and close with all the peers, but still able to associate and be part of a friend group as well. So I'm trying to imagine how I would assess that social relationship. And, and I think based on what you're saying, 
Um, the question would be something along the lines of, tell me about your friends. What role do you take in that, in that, in that group? Are you the person that calls everybody and gets everybody together? Or are you the person that hopes you get called? Or are you the person that goes along because you know you're supposed to? I, I'm not even sure how I would ask these. Yeah, and I think that's the difficulty in diagnosing. A lot of the studies I was reading is that diagnosticians most admit that it's they feel like it's more difficult to diagnose females. And one of the studies I was reading through, the diagnosticians included um, changes that they've made and suggestions that they have for assessing females to kind of get a better idea. What were those? Um, so one was just increased time in more sessions with the patient. So when they're going through an assessment, a lot of times a psychologist might go through a more extended session. And so just spending more time with them to kind of pick through their presentation and get a get to know them a little bit better, I think. Um, another one was asking the parents very specific questions and probing more. So kind of getting their input and then also just putting more weight on their input. Um, part of it, I think, was that the female patients might be able to mask their presentation pretty well, but parents often pick up on little things that over their lifetime that they've noticed. In, in the studies you're reading, and I think you have more of these items, but it, it, it generates a question. There's something called the ADOS, which is mm -hmm. uh, scheduled, it's like a diagnostic, um, might even be autism spectrum, ADOS, autism diagnostic schedule of some sort. Um, did they talk about using these diagnostic tools to overcome some of the difficulties in diagnosing autism, or did it? Did the articles you look at mention that at all? Um, one of the articles I was reading through did talk about that in a different test that they can use, um, but I think as I understood it, it was still based on the diagnostician's interpretation too. Like it's not black and white. Um, and so I think part of it that I was reading was diagnosticians, whether it's psychiatrist or psychologist or pediatrician, whoever is administering the test, um, being aware of how females might present differently while going through that test. I interrupted when you were talking about some of the things to look so for. So you talked about taking more time, and I know that the ADOS is, a, I, I want to say, an eight-hour like it's, pretty it, it, it's an extensive it's either four or eight and I don't remember which or the number of different uh, scenarios that you would put age appropriately into mm -hmm. and and so forth that's where I stopped you do you have more things to say along that line of how you might be better able to identify young girls with uh, autism um, just two more suggestions that they included. Um, one was using imaginative play in like very specific assessment tools. Um, one uh, specific that was given was picture stimuli to get responses to social situations to get more observations as the person doing the test. Um, so I think just being more creative when kind of challenging them socially, I think. Mm. And then asking questions to figure out if they're actively masking. So I, it didn't say if they say, hey, are you masking right now? Yeah, how do you do that? Um, so it didn't give details, but I think trying to pick that apart and part of what the study suggested was that the people they worked with on the study might be more experienced. And so with experience, they're maybe better at um, diagnosing females with autism and um, have more tricks of the trade for it. So, But they didn't go into too much detail besides that. So I, I work with a boss that might be a little skeptical. Um, 
And I have that skepticism quite often. I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, if I'm a skeptic, I'm, I'm hearing you say that uh, if you don't find the diagnosis, if you look long enough, you'll find something, right? But I don't think that's true because you have something listed here, listed here that kind of blows me away. If a young girl and a young boy show up at the same time with the same set of symptoms, they are both going to get diagnosed with the same condition, right? Well, they would view the fem The interesting thing is they found in the study, several studies, that they have a higher threshold for females. So, right. um, so even looking yeah. for it, even spending all this time to try and figure out if somebody's masking or not, same symptom set, boys are going to get diagnosed, girls may not. Right. So, so even if we're searching harder, we're, I don't think we're uncovering patients who don't truly have, or, or don't likely have autism, I should say. Right. So, so there's some, I, I just don't want anybody to be too skeptical listening to this because I think you're talking about people who spend a lot of time and have a better understanding of the spectrum than clearly I do. Right. And, and, ha, and, and I looked at this article and, and this was, um, I think it was a study with people who commonly diagnose mm -hmm. autism, mm -hmm. spend a lot of time with the condition. So they did a study with them. And then I, the way I understood this study, they also talked to those uh, diagnosticians mm -hmm. to try and get feedback about the data. So they had sort of the data and then the expert feedback to, yes. to, as a lens to look at that. Yes. Was there anything that struck you in that study after you read that, that maybe you would add? Um, one interesting thing that we've kind of touched on, um, but they kind of mentioned anxiety in females. Um, and I thought that was interesting that some of their symptoms might be viewed as anxiety instead of autism spectrum disorder. And by then diagnosing, this was an interesting point, but then by diagnosing it as anxiety and not what it truly is, can maybe worsen the anxiety in turn and then kind of reaffirm the uh, initial diagnosis of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of missing a whole part of the diagnosis. Uh, and I think big picture, this is significant because without getting access to resources, that can then make things more difficult for what, not just females, but males too with autism spectrum disorder if they're not learning how to engage with peers and have good social interactions can then lead to more anxiety and depression later on too. One of the things that's most important to psychiatrists, I think, is uh, mortality outcomes. I think at the end of the day, if you're thinking about uh, what matters most it's whether somebody lives longer or not and then maybe maybe equally as much the quality of those years mm -hmm. there's good data that suicide rates are increased in our patients with autism it looks like maybe the speech deficits are more associated with that increased risk and maybe even those speech deficits dramatically escalate the risk what are the, the functional consequences of autism? Um, did either of you look at that very closely? Like, what, how does that affect job performance, earning potential, happiness over a lifetime? Did any of you guys see anything along those lines that comes to mind immediately? I didn't. 
But I can make assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than make assumptions, we'll pick that up on another podcast. How does that sound? So we are, I, I think, we, we do know about the uh, suicidality and so forth. So, so good reasons to try and get the right diagnosis is mm-hmm. to treat the right problem. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I had after I looked at your summary uh, was if the underdiagnosis is always compensated with, with another diagnosis, or do young girls walk out of the office with no diagnosis saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with you, just try a little harder? I think, I don't know generally, I think the study I was reading showed an alternative diagnosis for the males, actually, of either ADHD or no diagnosis. I don't remember a distinct alternative. The diagnosticians actually did a good job in the study of diagnosing females, and the study kind of explained, well, these are these are the experts. These are the experts, and they were told beforehand this what is the, the study, study was about. <laughs> so they're kind of prompted. Um, but yeah, the interesting, the no diagnosis that I remember reading was more applicable to the males. So the idea might be that we have to have a little more suspicion in in women for those of us that aren't actively and commonly working to identify and treat patients with autism spectrum. Yeah, and an interesting thing too is it's they have to get referred to a professional in the first place to then get assessed and get a diagnosis and then get treatment. So that if, can be the, hard too. if people in the community, teachers, um, parents aren't aware of how females may present differently and things to look for, then they might be less likely to be, to be referred in the first place. So maybe the expert is aware, but if they don't get to them, that's not going to do them any good. just doesn't matter. Yeah. I want to talk about treatments. We are... In nearly an hour. Has it seemed like an hour? No. <laughs> good. That, that's good. I want to talk about treatments. Who has the treatment part? I did. And I do. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, looked into it a little bit more. Because uh, I talked about, I was a little bit familiar with the treatments as my daughter got, uh, received the diagnosis for autism spectrum disorder. And so we started being referred to uh, different kinds of therapies or different programs that we could do. And let me tell you, there are a lot of programs for autism spectrum disorder. There are a lot of things that you can do. I got a little bit overwhelmed trying to look at treatments. I, I did too. And so something that I kind of tried to look into a little bit is like, what's the best treatment? Like what was the most, um, what's the thing that you should be looking for? And so I found something uh, that, there was an article looking at diagnosis and treatment with children with autism and ADHD, kind of looking at that. But actually, the article actually had a lot of insight on specifically autism alone as well. Was this the tome that you found on the Cochrane Review, or is this a different article? It's a different article. Okay. Um, But with that, behavior therapy is the first-line treatment for children with autism, and they typically involve one-on-one therapy sessions. And so the sessions usually can sometimes include the parents, doesn't have to always. Um, And they implement reinforcing consequences for communication behaviors and uh, just social communication and language. And so improvements in that social communication and language and the play skills have been documented in particularly when implemented in a naturalistic setting. And so that naturalistic setting is specifically, is the therapy being done at home or in a classroom setting, somewhere where the child is going to be at a lot. And so another, uh, this is called Project AIM, it was a meta-analysis, 
looked at all the different types of uh, uh, behavioral therapies that were listed in it. And it was interesting because, uh, and this is actually also with the Cochrane Library who mentioned this, um, a lot of the interventions um, are actually not as helpful unless they're in that naturalistic setting, which is that naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions is what this meta-analysis called it, which was that natural setting at home or in, within a classroom, and they tried to help the patient uh, with interactions with the adult or other children through play or balanced turn-taking is what they called it. And so being able to, something that I do with my uh, daughter often is a matching game where we uh, take a card and we're trying to get her to communicate this way. It's more of a, it's a speech therapy in a sense. But we take this card, it has a picture on it with the word at the bottom, and we say ball, for example. Ball, try to get her to repeat it. She usually just smiles at us as we put the card down. And then you take the object and do the same thing. Ball, and then we have her try and participate with it. And then it's funny because now, this is actually just yesterday, She's walking around, she puts the box on the box of cards on the kitchen table and she takes the card and she'll come up and she actually mimics us by holding the card up to her mouth, smiling, because we're gonna tell her what the word is. But she's just like, she knows what it is, and so she'll just smile and then she'll go put it on the table and then she'll grab the object, come back, put the object next to her mouth and just <laughs> smiling at us, and then go and put the object as we explain what the object is. But that's that balanced turn-taking of, like, being able to, like, um, I've communicated, now it's your turn. Like, it's your turn to speak. So even with the language deficit, she's starting to reciprocate. Right. Okay. And so they found that it's particularly useful in supporting the developmental uh, development in social communication, language, and just play skills. Um, that Cochrane library that, I, that we talked about, that... It, it's massive. It was, hard, it was hard to digest, but it had a couple different therapies, and it was actually pretty... It's similar results where the focused playtime intervention, or that's something that they were really trying to look into called augmentative communication intervention. Um, and I, I should have looked a little bit more deeper into <laughs> the specifics of what each therapy involved, but they found that... I know the picture exchange communication system. One was in... Is that what you just described as picture exchange? Or is that something that, else? Yeah, so that's what I described before, where they were able to go through. And it's funny because I said before, it actually says this, that that picture exchange communication system, uh, communicative, yeah, communication system, it's able to improve verbal and nonverbal initiation, which is literally what she's doing. It does work. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't help with the vocab, which is funny because that's probably what the, that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> there was a couple of terms that came up, and I'm I'm going to ask this in the middle of it because you've mentioned AAC, um, alternative and augmentative communication. I assume that's the sign language, those kinds of approaches. How you how do you communicate without words? Through sign language, yeah. Yeah, um, and then the the other question I had is. What is parental synchrony? I, I saw that somewhere, but I have no idea what it means. Have you did did you guys run across that phrase? Figure out what it was. Okay, I don't it, remember. If not, then I'm going to go to a different uh, question. It seems like most of the therapies, um, 
maybe track into either behavioral therapies, communication-focused therapies, or something called multimodal therapies. You're nodding your head. Am I on the right track with that then? I think so. Or, and I, I think that was part of the aha moment I had a few minutes ago. Remember I talked about having these seven, lever, uh, seven uh, push switches on, on some sort of soundboard and each one is somewhat different. Right. I, I'm under the impression that maybe there is a therapy for each of those potential deficits within autism that may impair social functioning or may impair functioning, period, not social functioning alone. And that each of these different therapies, we're still trying to find the therapies that maybe are most effective for each area. Can you repeat that one? That, that they're, <laughs> so that sorry. I, I think we're still looking for, I, I think therapy for autism spectrum disorder is a mishmash of a lot of different things that help with individual symptoms more than it does with a, quote, autism. I think that's a fair assessment. Okay. Um, the next question I had um, goes to biological treatments. So there's there's not a lot in the biology. I think I sent you on a wild goose chase. I had looked at some stuff with autism at one point. Um, I, I think the question is, does autism help ameliorate some of the relationship difficulties, right? Our patients with autism spectrum disorder have a... a tend to have, not always, but often have difficulties in maintaining relationships, right? Whether that's friendships, or they, they fall in and out of social groups, whatever the case might be, those can be very challenging, perhaps particularly for young uh, young girls, right? It sounds like a specific hormone. <laughs> and, well, I, I think there was a question, because one of the things that I think came up during the uh, what I read about the differences between men and women was that the social communication tended to be better in women than men. Mm -hmm. and, and I did wonder if that was, I think, estrogen-related, right? That, that's the, the question at heart, whether it is or not. I don't know that I know any information on that. And I think the other option might be oxytocin-related, right? That, that ability to interact socially. So I sent you on a, a wild goose chase on oxytocin. Yeah, and you and I, I think, came to the same conclusion, which was... Well, it's that it's there. It's funny because, you know, that one article that you sent me on is that they found that oxytocin, plasma oxytocin levels are actually lower in, ki in children with autism spectrum disorder, but treating them with oxytocin doesn't really have much of an effect. Um, doesn't seem to work, does it? No, they did find that like maybe there are some positives in like emotion recognition and like, eye gaze, maybe eye contact, but other than that, it's not significant. Did you leave ready to fill your own vials of uh, let's see, insufflators with uh, <laughs> oxytocin to try and help your patients? <laughs> I mean, I made the joke. I've thought about this, and I told Leslie before. Um, you know, I always I thought with that. Uh, relationship, being able to improve relationships with oxytocin, and I was like, man, they should put this in marriage therapy or something. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I remember when you were explaining it to me, like, it makes sense. Like, if you're able to increase the oxytocin, they should be able to maybe uh, have better relationships or be able to uh, fill that closeness uh, with um, other individuals. But... In, I think something, this is just kind of moving on when what I was kind of thinking about as I was reading these articles is that it may, 
help them maybe feel close to specific individuals or maybe like feel more of a friendship or a kinship with somebody or maybe their parents but it may not solve the problems with the language deficits or the social interactions that they have i don't know if it's going to make them like uh, as since like socially competent not being socially awkward i think that's the key issue right being attached to somebody may not be the same as being able to interact socially with somebody right Mm -hmm. and and i think quite often as uh physicians at least for me i'll speak for me I get caught in the mindset quite often that medicine is a bunch of push buttons. If I push the right button, I get a certain outcome, right? Uh, I put this and I get this out. And at least in this case, putting oxytocin in doesn't solve the problems associated with autism. Right. Here's, I'll throw out a tough question though, and I don't want you to actually answer this one. Um, Probably won't be able to anyways. (laughs) I'll, I'll let people think about this. As Etta's father, I think you would do anything to help her have the best outcome possible. Knowing that, and looking at the data on oxytocin, again, I do not want you to answer this. (laughs) There's something maybe there. How far would you go to get oxytocin for your daughter, knowing that the data just isn't that great for it? And how far would you go to get it for a patient who isn't your daughter, knowing that the data is not the greatest, and should there be a difference between those two? Because in my mind, and again, I do not want you to comment on this, in my mind, really hard. <laughs> a, a father would maybe respond differently than a physician. And I'll just leave that out there for people to think about with the goal that we're always thinking about, are we, um, of reconciling how hard we work for somebody and also following the data at the same time because I think we want to do both of those all the time. I'm going to throw out one more question. I think we're pretty close to the end. Uh, One more question. There was uh, an article that was published in a lot of the popular uh, magazines or at least referenced in a number of um, newspapers recently about uh, the promise of lamotrigine in solving autism. Did any of you guys see that article in the last... I mean, you guys are busy um, on your rotation here. Sounds like a good podcast. (laughs) Sounds like a good podcast. So so there there were a couple of things that struck me with that. One is that um, now that I've gone through the prep for this, I have a different idea about what I'm looking for when I go back and look at these articles, right? I'll probably go look up the article. I think I did. But again, without having a sense of spectrum, which I think I do now, and the difficulty in ha- I don't think autism is a push one button. If we get the right button, we solve all of autism, right? We'll talk about maybe pathophysiology of autism in another podcast. But now that I have these things floating around in my mind, hopefully I can go back and look at this article on the use of lamotrigine and treatment of autism with a little bit better um, ability. Um, on that note, what have we not talked about that the two of you want to talk about? I think something I just want to add on that last bit is that, and I forgot to mention in the treatments with the behavioral therapies, is that you are right. Therapy sessions are very individualized for the patient and the parent's needs. And okay. so... And parent's needs. And parent's needs. I like that. And so, I mean, like the parents, and I, I found this, my wife, honestly, she probably should have sat in on this podcast too because she's read in a lot in <laughs> all these things and actually have mentioned the female and male uh, differences in 
uh, presentation of autism, but like, you know, it's a two year old girl. And so, and these patients, you know, they are often in that um, preschool, early elementary age when they start receiving these diagnoses and these parents uh, should be involved in being able to help out because when therapy sessions are done or when we get through these, like parents are the ones that are with them all the time or should be with them most of the time. And so being able to understand how you can best help your child in that situation, I think is very important. What I heard is very different than what you said. But well, I, like it's what, individualized, <laughs> you help them out and you mentioned it, but it kind of made me think of that. But um, it is individualized in that you are specifically trying to help out with maybe the speech aspect or the social aspect or um, the behavioral aspect that appears. And so um, you do work on what the child needs. So I'm, I'm going to go back. I was about to say what you said and what I heard are probably two very different things. I did hear you say treatment is individualized, but even more what I heard you say was your wife understands autism better than we do. No. <laughs> Maybe. She knows a lot. <laughs> well, she might, but like, <laughs> she's and, researched a lot as a right. concerned mother. And my guess is that she has been in places where she now is in a peer group. She probably sees people coming and leaving appointments where she's, where she's taking your daughter for therapy. And so my guess is that she sees a lot of kids that may have autism spectrum disorder and she has more of an ability to norm things than we do. I I heard my daughter or my wife is really amazing from you, so <laughs> that's pretty cool. And second, I would also say she's welcome to come join you and I on a podcast anytime you'd like. Okay. Um, it sounds like she'd do a great job. Other things that you think we may have forgotten or need to add at this point? I have one little, I guess, anecdote. Um, I don't know if anecdote is the right word, but I had a past preceptor whose son had autism has autism, autism spectrum disorder, and she said he describes it as a superpower. So I thought that was really cool to hear her say that, where it was, I think, I think he got the diagnosis when he was a little bit older, and so to have that kind of explanation of why he was sometimes struggling, now he describes it as a super superpower because he can get hyper-focused on things. <laughs> and um, I thought that was a really cool way of, it almost sounded like empowering in him, not as a bad thing of a diagnosis, but a cool, unique feature that he has now. So so probably a high-functioning autism that didn't have intellectual disability associated with it, didn't have necessarily the same language deficits. It sounded more from what she described as maybe some social, the social issues, yeah. It's interesting because I think there, was a, there has been a period of time where, uh, uh, what, what is uh, his name, Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch right? Um, the guy that plays uh, Doctor Strange, mm -hmm. what's his name? He he did some uh, Sherlock Holmes episodes that were phenomenal, right? He's just an, from my viewpoint, I, <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of really talented actors out there, but I think he's unbelievably talented. Um, there are a whole lot of people that, after that came out, and the focus was Sherlock Holmes being a, a high-functioning, sociopathic, autistic, whatever, right? Um, there were a lot of people that seemed to fall into kind of that. It's a superpower. This is how I identify myself. And I think how you see yourself matters a lot. Definitely. At least yeah. I think that was where that came from, some of that. Maybe. I don't know. Anything else that we missed along the way? If if not, I'm going to mention two other things and then hear your take-homes, okay? Okay. Number one, 
um, how would you pick up autism if it's high functioning? And I think the issue is that you still see some sort of change in function, a loss of ability between years one and two, right? It's not that a child doesn't stop gaining, it's that there's actually regression of some sort. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, so, so I think that's really important. You have to see some loss between year zero and two of some sort of social interaction, which I think is incredibly uh, interesting, I think would be very difficult to pick up, especially in perhaps high-functioning autism where the cognitive deficits may not, may not help you see that. So, um, I think that probably covered both of those. So, what are your take-homes from this? Let's see, we'll start with you. I mean, you honestly kind of gave me an aha moment with my own daughter on that regression, in a sense, which where she, uh, I do remember her as a baby, like, interacting and look, making the eye contact and things, and then just all of a sudden it's just not there anymore. Or, uh... Or at least you didn't notice it anymore. It was well, gone somehow. Yeah, it's like now, like retro, like th- hindsight now, and looking back on it, it's like, oh yeah, and like I could see that. Um, I'm really uh, grateful for uh, being able to look more into this podcast and look deeper into it. I think it's definitely uh, uh, opened my eyes a little bit more to uh, the different presentations, the different aspects, just uh, you know, just how broad and how in depth you really can go into this uh, specific diagnosis because it, it is a lot and it is there is a lot that could be different and I uh, am glad that I've been able to I guess just scratch the surface on it and it'd be really fun to look deeper into the diagnosis even more. Nice take home. Leslie? I don't have a big final message. I just think um, with my part being about the gender differences I just think Um, when working with females, keeping an open mind with it. And I know there are other diagnoses that can be more male heavy and sometimes females struggle if they have that as well because they don't get picked up on as much. Um, So I think for diagnosticians and students who are coming up to just keep, I guess, more of an open mind with it. There's a a great discussion that comes out of this. and I've thought about it a lot. Uh, I had a student a number of years ago where we would talk about um, I think since that time, sex and gender have become a, that changes the way we talk Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit, but it was sort of before that discussion. And uh, um, I'm trying to remember her name. It will come to me as soon as we're done. Uh, Wonderful student who was thinking about psychiatry. I think she ended up going into family medicine. Uh, Liked her very, very much. We did the podcast on gender reassignment surgery. Uh, um, And there was we had discussions for example about um, there's a, there's a phrase that helps people remember um, gallbladder disease I think I've mentioned this it's it's a phrase that's not it, it, it has some uh, sexist overtones I think on some level it's it's not a very pleasant mnemonic people would find it, it offensive right um, and and yet it it talks about risk factors for a condition, right? So there's this really difficult dichotomy, and I haven't figured out how to manage it well yet, where if we think about the risk factors for autism, we probably think male sex is a risk factor for autism. But if you have a man that is thin, that comes up 
in with some pain in his upper right quadrant that is squeezing in nature and intermittent, just because he doesn't meet the profile doesn't mean we shouldn't recognize that as potential gallbladder disease, right? right. And so I, I think, in my mind, the issue is how do you take risk factors and also ignore them at the same time so that you see people who don't fit the risk factor profile well mm -hmm. and be able to um, hone your diagnostic skills to capture everybody. And I don't know a good answer for that, but I think somehow, again, it's that um, pay attention to both sets of facts. You can't be dad and practice medicine. You can't be a clinician um, and only think about the data. There has to be some kind of merging of those two opposite things, right? Um, and I think it's, it's probably the same with these risk factors and, and this conversation on women who have autism spectrum disorder really uh, caught my attention in that same way again. Mm -hmm. how, how do I think about things that I don't consider well so that I'm more adept at, at identifying a diagnosis that I should find? Right? right, and I think part of that, a lot of that's got to be experience. Um, and also I think identifying your weaknesses and referring patients to experts when you need to as well for, a, for their benefit. Yeah, that's a great statement. So I had a couple of take-homes from this. I, I really liked this podcast. I feel like it was, again, one that I relied heavily on the two of you, tried to ask questions to fill the deficits. Um, first of all, the issue of spectrum makes more sense to me now than it did. The ideas around treatment and how varied they are make more sense to me now. And, and as I start looking forward to how I understand to identify and then find the appropriate treatment for this, I will, I, I will better understand that this isn't a, oh, it's autism, I now give this person oxytocin through the nose, intranasal oxytocin, and send them off for ABA. Well, ABA might only be appropriate if somebody has the behavioral difficulties, right? Or, or I, I might send them for some sort of uh, language acquisition, um, or I might send them for something that gives reciprocity in their interactions, right? It depends on, on the deficit. So, so I really think I, I learned a lot about how do I now read the literature in the future so that I have a better understanding of, of how I do diagnose and how I refer for treatment. The other, the other thing that I think I, I was really an aha moment for me is I've always thought of autism as parents notice over time the loss of social interaction um, as opposed to s the symptoms happen in those first two years. There's a regression in some areas where you see loss of function. And, and it's not exactly like Rett disorder, right? I always had in my mind the, this disintegrative disorder that happens at age two where people are functioning, patients, children are functioning, toddlers, I guess, functioning uh, in a consistent manner that would fall within the population norms and then all of a sudden uh, they can't uh, walk anymore yeah that just like falls that. apart right and so so I had always thought about there's always an illness and it just becomes manifest more but that just doesn't resonate with me and I have to, to learn that more so a lot of great things for me I really enjoyed this and I think um, that you were willing to share the experiences you have uh, make this a much more relatable mm -hmm. uh, podcast, and I, I uh, really appreciate that. I'm going to tweet out. Um, <laughs> we tweet out, so there are a few uh, people that follow us that have gone into psychiatry. So I tweet out so that they know that there's a new podcast up. Um, and if you want to jump on that tweet at USH Med Student, <laughs> you're welcome to. If your family wants to amplify that, I will not amplify that on your behalf, though. 
other than put it out there on Twitter. Anything else that you guys have to add before we sign off? All right. I don't think so. On that note, team, team out. out.